Scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. Genesis 12, 1 through 9. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. Do you know what the first thing the disciples were criticized for after Jesus' ascension? Now, you probably know some things that the disciples were criticized for throughout the ministry of Jesus. For example, they were criticized for their failure to understand his teachings from time to time. They were also criticized for their failure to believe from time to time. But the very first thing they are criticized for after Jesus ascended into heaven was for their failure to move. In Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, we read the following account. When he, a reference to Jesus, had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, what happens here is that after the disciples witnessed Jesus' ascension, they stood there gazing into heaven. And suddenly, two messengers appeared and challenged them to stop standing around and to get moving. They had a mission to complete. They had a job to do, and it wasn't time to be standing and staring. You know, as we prepare to enter a new year, not just physically, not just financially, not just chronologically, but but spiritually enter a new year. It's important that we consider how we're going to move ahead. So what I want to do this morning is look at the example of someone in Scripture who was called by God to make a move. And the reason I want to look at Abram today is because in his story, in his account, in his decisions, 
we find what it's going to take for you and I to move forward too. As we enter 2024, we should enter it with the mentality that we're going to progress, we're going to grow, we're going to improve in some capacity spiritually. That's why on the cover of the bulletin, like I do every single year, there is an opportunity for you to set some spiritual goals. And I encourage you to uh, work your way through those questions that appear on that bulletin cover so that you can set some spiritual objectives for 2024. Because in 2024, we've got to make a move. Spiritually speaking, every one of us individually needs to make a move. But let's consider what that takes. In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, a man named Abram, who would later have his name changed to Abraham, received a message from God. A message in which he was instructed to go, to move, to go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. What's so very interesting is that there's no prior communication recorded in the Bible between God and Abram. There's no preface to this story. There's no relationship development process between the two parties. In fact, we'll find out later that Abram's family weren't even worshipers of God initially. Many years after Abraham, one of his descendants named Joshua was giving a farewell address to the people before his death. And he said this in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 2. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they, plural, not just Terah, but Terah and his sons, Abraham and Nahor, they served other gods. So when God instructed Abram to move, we don't know if Abram really knew that much about God. But what we do know is that Abram obeyed. And Abram's decision to obey is really the basis of our study today. And let's consider what we can learn about moving from Abram's obedience. And the first thing I want to point out is that when it comes to moving, trust is a must. Get ready, we're about to have fun with rhymes today. Trust is a must. You see, when we look at this account in Genesis chapter 12 about Abram, really the most important verse might be the fourth verse. Because it tells us everything we need to know about this guy. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 4 sets the stage for understanding what God expects of us because it's what God expected of Abram. See, after God called Abram to leave his country, his kindred, and his father's house to go to an unknown land, we're told in verse 4 that Abram went. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. That's an act of trust. I'm afraid trust is lacking in the world today. I think we've all experienced that, that we trust less and less the older we get. I remember when Micah was young, we had a playground in our neighborhood, and she loved to go down to that playground and, and climb all over it. 
one of the elements on that playground was a climbing wall, and she, and she loved to attempt to climb it. But she never could quite complete it on her own. She would get up very high on it, and then she'd want to come down. And the quickest way to get down was to jump. To jump not to the ground, but into the arms of dad. And those of you who have had kids, you know there's this age, there's this period in their childhood where they just leap. They don't ask if you're going to catch. They don't wait for you to get ready. They just jump, full on expecting you to catch them with no consideration of the dangers they're posing to themselves. They just jump. That's the beauty of, of, of children is they have this inherent trust and you as a parent, to catch them, regardless of your preparation, regardless of your readiness, regardless of your attention. <laughs> and so Micah would get to this point in the climbing wall, and then she'd just jump, assuming that I'm going to catch her. But you know, as we get older, we don't jump like we used to. As we, as we grow, we tend to tighten up a little bit. Once we've experienced a little bit of life, we get more cautious. We've seen other people get hurt by jumping. Some of us have even been hurt by jumping. We've witnessed mistakes, and we've witnessed the consequences of mistakes. We've, we've matured, and as we mature, we begin to plan our jumps, don't we? We want to know at what rate we will be jumping off. We want to know the distance we will be falling. We want to know whether or not the person catching us is strong enough. So we begin to plan every detail of our jump. We essentially want to know the facts before we have the faith. And as a result, we start taking only calculated jumps, only calculated risks. As adults, we're not quite the jumpers we used to be as kids because we don't have the same level of trust we once did. And here's the thing. Many believers will never finish moving because they're only willing to take calculated risks. They jump only if they can see what they're jumping into. For all intents and purposes, they walk by sight, not by faith. And the problem with that is it's not pleasing to God. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 says that it is impossible to please God without faith. In, God, in other words, God expects us to trust him like a child trusts a parent. And that's exactly what Abraham did. I want you to notice how Abram's story is described in Hebrews chapter 11. Just two verses after this very verse that tells us it is impossible to please God without faith. Just two verses later, we read the author of Hebrews' description of Abram's life. 
starting in verse 8. And what you'll find out in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8 is that Abraham did not know where he was going. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. That's trust. Abram trusted God when he didn't even know where God was taking him. And you know what? Abram didn't know how God was going to fulfill his promises. The covenant promises, hey, you're going to be made into a great nation. You're going to have descendants abound from you. But if you look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11 and 12, we're told that by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, from Abram, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the, as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Abram did not know how God was going to bring about these descendants. His wife was past the age of childbearing. His body, fertility-wise, was as good as dead. He didn't know how God was going to operate. And you know what else? Abram didn't know when he would receive God's promised blessings. Verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 11, in the midst of describing Abram's faith, the author of Hebrews says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. The reference here is to the fact that some of the things that are promised to Abram and others mentioned in this chapter weren't fully realized in their lifetime. They had to believe that they would come to fruition, even if they never saw them come to fruition. Yes, Abram had a son. And yes, Abram had grandchildren. But Abram did not get to see the final result of a, a, a genealogy that is as numerous as the stars of heaven. He just had to believe that God would bring it into fruition. He had to trust that God was going to do what God promised he would do. And Abram didn't know why God would ask him to do certain things. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 through 19, we read about his offering of Isaac. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abram's asked to sacrifice this one child that is supposed to be the one through whom the blessing would be fulfilled. And he didn't know why God wanted him to do this. And he didn't ask God why he wanted him to do them this. He just trusted that God had a good reason. And that reason was a test. You see, Abram didn't know where he was going. He didn't know how God was going to fulfill his promises. He didn't know when God was going to fulfill his promises. And he didn't know why God asked him to do certain things. But Abram trusted God, regardless of his unanswered questions. Even though he didn't know the details, Abram took the leap. And that's why he's referred to as the father of faith. And here's the thing. We cannot inherit the blessings that God brought forth through Abraham if we don't trust like Abraham. 
Paul said in Romans chapter 4 and verse 13 that the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And he added a few verses later in verse 16 that God's promises are guaranteed to all his offspring, which is made up of those who share the faith of Abraham. So a question we need to ask ourselves today is, do we trust like Abraham trusted? Do you trust that God is going to provide for all your needs if you seek him first as he promised in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33? Do you believe that God is going to provide you a way out of each and every temptation as he promised in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13? Do you trust that God will never stop loving you no matter what happens in your life, just as he promised in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. Do you believe, do you trust the promises that God has provided? Because when you trust God, it affects the direction of your life. That's what Solomon declared in Proverbs chapter 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. As we enter 2024, we need to recognize that trust is a must. If we want to move, if we want to progress, if we want to change, if we want to grow, if we want to mature, it's got to start with trusting the one and only God, just like Abraham trusted him. But if we want to move, we're also going to have to accept that sacrifice is the price. Sacrifice is the price. Look again at Genesis chapter 12 and those first three verses and look at what's being offered Abraham. This is a sweet deal because God promises Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The tremendous upside of this deal is amazing. God is promising Abraham... Riches that you can't get with money. Blessings that you can't come across on your own. Things that are unattainable to the average human being. But, in order for Abraham to receive these blessings, there are sacrifices that would have to be made. Look at what is required of him. Go from your country. Go from your kindred. Go from your father's house. The covenant requires Abram to make a choice. He must decide whether to abandon his land in favor of the land Yahweh offers. He must decide whether to abandon what family he still has in favor of the family Yahweh promises. And he must decide whether to set aside his inheritance for the inheritance Yahweh describes. 
what God promises to give Abram is incredible. Incredible. But it's also expensive when you think about it. And just like Abram, our decision to, to, to follow the Lord will require sacrifice. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus was being followed by large crowds, and he decided it was time to talk to these crowds about what it really means to follow him. So in Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 26, he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate, does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Was, was Jesus really calling on his followers to hate people? We know that there is no place in Jesus' teaching for literal hatred because elsewhere he commanded his followers to love even their enemies. So obviously Jesus is not saying that we have to hate people in order to follow him. So what then is he saying? Well, in, the, in Scripture, hating is equivalent to simply loving less. So when Jesus said that one must hate his or her family in order to follow him. He was not saying that we should dislike them, but that we should love him more. The point he's making is that discipleship is a declaration of devotion. Choosing to follow Christ is an expression of our love for him. And what Jesus is saying is that if we love him the most then we can expect there to be something that has to be sacrificed. Because think about it. Whenever something gets promoted on your love depth chart, that means something has to be demoted. If you move Jesus to the starting lineup of your love, then something had to get reduced. That happened when you got married, didn't it? When you got married, you were declaring that I'm going to choose to love this person above all other persons. This person is going to be my primary love. And when you had children, guess what? They got elevated in that love depth chart. I'm going to love these kids more than I love this person or that person. When you choose Jesus, you're choosing to put him in first place on that depth chart. That means everyone else and everything else has to get demoted at least one notch. That means a sacrifice has to be made. Now I hope when Jesus took over first place in your love depth chart, you didn't sacrifice your wife or your husband. That'd be unbiblical. And when Jesus took over first place in your love death chart, it shouldn't have affected your children and where they stand on your, and whether or not they're still loved. That would be unbiblical. But maybe your love for your job got demoted. Maybe your love of money got demoted. Maybe your love of your Hobbies and interests and extracurricular activities got demoted. Something had to get sacrificed on that love depth chart for Jesus. 
And here's the thing. It's not going to be the same thing for every person. You remember the parable of the, uh, the rich ruler? It's recorded in, Matthew, uh, excuse me, in Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, this rich ruler asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responded by indicating that he needed to keep the commandments. And the ruler told Jesus that he had kept all of those commandments since he was a child. And that's when Jesus pointed out the one thing that that individual had refused to sacrifice for the sake of following him. Jesus said in Luke chapter 18 and verse 22, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. For that rich ruler, the sacrifice, the price he had to pay, was his finances. You know, nowhere in the Bible are we commanded to sell all that we have and give it to the poor. We are commanded to be generous. We are commanded to help the poor. So the reason the rich ruler's finances were the cost he had to incur is because he failed to demote his finances on his love death chart. You see, it's not going to be the same for you as it is for me. It's very personalized what has to get sacrificed. What's the one thing in your life that is staying too high on the depth chart? What's the one thing in your life that needs to get demoted today? What's the one thing in your life that needs to be sacrificed so that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. See, the question you have to consider is whether or not the price Christ has asked you to pay is higher than the price of failing to put him first. Because Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 24 and 25, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? There is a price to be paid when it comes to following Christ. And as we enter 2024, what's that price for you? What needs to be sacrificed in your life so that Christ is prioritized in your life? Because if you want to move, it's going to take some sacrifice. And if you want to move... You need to understand that obedience is obsolete if it is not complete. Or to say that in the way it appears on the screen, obedience is obsolete if it is incomplete. I want you to consider a question with me as we round out this study today. When did Abram receive his call from God? The setting of Genesis 12 seems to imply that God called Abram after he settled in Haran. Because you have to remember, the, the Bible was not written with chapters and verses, so chapter 11 and chapter 12 go together as one continuous thought. And if you were to open your Bible back to Genesis chapter 11, you'll see, beginning in verse 31, that we're told, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth 
together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So when you're looking here at Genesis chapter 11 and 12, it sounds like Abram followed his dad to Haran. They settled there, and then all of a sudden God speaks to Abram, and it's time for Abram to leave. But I want you to compare this to the sermon Stephen preached in Acts chapter 7, verses 2 through 4. His final sermon before he was stoned to death. And in that sermon, he recalls the history of Abram. And he says this beginning in verse 2. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Before he lived in Haran. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans. I'm sorry. And, they, and said to him, go out from your land, from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. According to Stephen, whose words are just as inspired as Moses's in Genesis chapter 12, according to Stephen, Abraham was called when he lived in Ur. Abraham was called before he got to Haran. Abraham was called before his dad died. Abraham was called back when he and his family were still worshiping little g-gods. And so the move to Haran, according to Stephen, was under the direction of God. But then they get to Haran and they settle there. And God has to speak to him again. You see, the way we reconcile these two passages is this. Abraham was living in Ur when he was instructed to leave his land and his kindred to go into the land that God would show him. It's interesting because Stephen never mentions leaving your father's house in Acts chapter 7. That's not an issue yet. It seems that God was okay with Abram's family, his extended family, his father, his brother, his nephew, all going with him in this trip to a land that God would show him. But then they got to Iran. And instead of going on to God's final destination, which is Canaan, Abram settled in Haran with his father. And that's when God had to say something to Abram. That's when God instructed him to leave his father's house. Because what Abram has done is he's only gone halfway with his obedience. Full obedience was to Canaan. Half obedience was to Haran. And here's the thing. Many believers will never finish moving because they're only willing to obey halfway. That's what happened to Abram. Think about it this way. If I tell Micah to pick up her shoes, which are in the living room, and put them in the shoe container in her bedroom closet, which is upstairs... And she picks up those shoes and she goes up the stairs and she sets them down on the floor. Has she obeyed what I said? Every parent in this room knows the answer. No. Because every parent understands that partial obedience is really disobedience. 
That's what Abram did here. When he settled in Haran, all he did was partially obey, not fully obey. And like Abram, many believers will leave their Ur, but never get to Canaan because they stop in their Haran. Some believers are willing to exhibit all the characteristics that Jesus calls them to possess. But then they come to the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus talks about forgiveness and indicates that our forgiveness of others when they sin against us should be limitless. And that's when they pull the reins and they put on the brakes with their discipleship and they say, nope, I can't go any further. I can come to this point, but I'm not going that way. I'm not going to forgive him or I'm not going to forgive her. Nope. This is as far as my obedience goes. Some believers are willing to obey every command presented in the word of God, but then they arrive at Romans chapter 13 and verse 1 and encounter the words, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, and all of a sudden their commitment is stalled. All of a sudden they're looking for conditions and loopholes because they can only go halfway on that one. Nope. I can't obey that command Not while he's in office, not while they control Congress, not while this is happening in our country. All the while forgetting who was in charge when those words were written. A guy with the title of Caesar. In a world where Christianity was about to endure its worst persecution to date. And some believers are willing to adopt every ethical standard communicated in the Bible. They support pro-life measures because the Bible instructs us not to murder. They oppose same-sex marriage because the Bible limits that holy institution to one man and one woman. But when it comes to their own sexual purity, whether that be physically, emotionally, mentally, or even virtually, they don't flee like they're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18. They're only willing to commit halfway on ethics when it applies to me. And what pleases me, nope, not going any further, halfway obedience. And we could keep the list going for the next half hour if we wanted to. What we have to remember is that we are called to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and all of our strength. And the way we do that, Jesus said, is by keeping his commandments. Not one commandment, not two commandments. Not some commandments, not most commandments. Implicit in this statement is all commandments. And so as we enter 2024, if we want to move, if we don't want the same criticism those disciples received after Jesus' ascension, then our obedience is going to have to be complete, not partial. Because obedience is obsolete if it is incomplete. And so that brings me to a story you might be familiar with about explorer Hernan Cortez. In 1519, this Spanish conquistador landed in modern-day Veracruz, Mexico. He had 11 ships, a few hundred soldiers, and a dozen or so horses and cannons. A year prior, he he received a commission by the governor of Cuba to explore the interior of Mexico for the purpose of trade and colonization. But he had a different agenda. He wanted to conquer the Aztec Empire and plunder their wealth. Somewhere between his initial commission and his arrival on that beach in Mexico, he had a falling out with the governor of Cuba. 
and lost the governor's approval for his mission. In fact, he set sail from Cuba against the governor's orders and thereby was liable for mutiny if he returned. So upon arrival in Veracruz, Cortez made a drastic decision. He deliberately sank 10 of his 11 ships and sent that lone remaining ship back to Spain to gain permission from the king for his endeavor and to pay the king his royal share of the wealth he had already obtained. And so there they stood on the beaches of Mexico with no seaworthy vessels available to them and nowhere to go except forward. By sinking his ships, Cortez eliminated the potential for abandoning the effort and thereby gave his men incentive to commit to their mission. Now, I do not admire Cortez for the mission he completed, which involved essentially genocide and stealing and a number of other things that God would find horrible. But the idea of burning what's behind to make yourself move forward is the point I want to emphasize. 2023 and everything prior is behind us. It's time to move ahead. And to do that, to do that, we're going to have to trust the Lord. To do that, we're going to have to make some sacrifices. And to do that, we're going to have to fully obey. Are you ready to make that decision? Are you ready to commit to that mission? Are you ready to be all in on Jesus Christ in 2024? Because that's the invitation. To be honest, that's always been the invitation. And maybe today that needs to start by you becoming his child, by confessing that you believe he is the risen son of God, by repenting of your sins, and by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. Whatever your need might be today, we invite you to make the decision to put Christ first in your life. If you need to come, won't you do so? While together we stand and sing. And we walk with the Lord in the light of His word. Let's start at the top of verse 3. 
participation today as we've thought about Abram's call and we've sung also about Zion's call and about trusting in God, about the blessings that God gives and so many of the other thoughts. Um, we invite you back this evening where we will have a special service, uh, Jesus in song and story, beginning with the anticipation of the coming of the Messiah all the way through to the, the anticipation of the return of the king and we'll have songs and scriptures that tell that story and we hope you can come back at six o'clock um, we'll sing one last song number 598 and then we'll be dismissed in prayer standing on the promises of christ my king through eternal ages let us praise We're grateful that we could come this morning on this first day of the week, but also the last day of the year, and worship you. We are so thankful, Father, for your faithfulness amid all the different things we go through in this life, especially, Father, for completing another year, uh, which this year bookend with worship uh, as we started this year and as we close out this year. We're mindful of what we've discussed today and, and thought upon uh, throughout all of service, and we simply pray, Father, that we would trust and we would obey 
but Father, that that would root not from just uh, blind trust and, and, and all of that, but to admire and see your faithfulness to us, Father, and knowing your creation, knowing the power that you have, and letting that, Father, uh, lead us to a faith that is unshakable so that we can continue in a faithfulness that truly does glorify you. We pray that this would